So this is our uh, ongoing discussion of Simondon's individuation in light of notions of form and information. We're on the part on psychical individuation, uh, which is part three in the French, uh, but in the English it's uh, different for some reason. But we're on chapter one, section four on the trans individual. Last week we saw Simondon's arguments in favor of what he calls this quantic or quantum character of consciousness, which doesn't mean anything having to do necessarily with quantum physics, but is um, a notion of consciousness having threshold effects. So there's something like um, an all or nothing character to certain phenomena uh, related to consciousness. Yeah, so he uh, introduces this notion of um, all or nothing character, and he also uh, sets out the sort of general problem of this chapter, which is affectivity, which uh, we'll continue to talk about today. He, he sets out this notion of the affective uh, as a, a layer of the psychism, uh, of the psyche, I should say, um, that is intermediate between the uh, unconscious and consciousness. Uh, so he, he argues that uh, in psychoanalysis, there is a certain copying of the unconscious from consciousness. So the unconscious is sort of modeled on uh, consciousness, uh, whereas what he calls the subconscious, so this sort of intermediate layer um, that is characterized by affectivity, is not something that has a structure that is similar to the to consciousness. It's like like the unconscious. It's something that the subject is not necessarily aware of. Uh, and so he, he even says that the affective roots of an action are what we um, know least about ourselves. So we, we aren't generally aware of the uh, affective uh, or this affective layer um, in, in our psyche. But it's, um, it's something that something that is not similar, that's not similar to, uh, to consciousness. It's, it's something uh, that has a different form. And it also has something to do with collective collectives and uh, the collective individuation that we're going to get to in a few weeks, I guess, um, when we get to that part of the book. He talks about how when we want to sort of differentiate groups of people in terms of their psyche, um, we can't really do so on the basis of conscious representations. We have to do so in terms of affectivity. So different groups of people, different uh, nations or whatever grouping of people you want to pick, they might have different affective uh, responses to different phenomena. So they, they prefer different types of food or different kinds of music or um, whatever um, the, the sort of things uh, that have to do with taste in general. Um, and the next bit is about uh, communication, which uh, we spent, I think, a fair amount of time on this bit because it's one of the, I think, most powerful passages in this book where he talks about this notion of syzygy, um, the ancient Greek notion, um, which is based on this idea of the two draft animals, uh, two oxen or whatever, that are pulling a plow together um, that have this very strong emotional bond with each other, um, so strong that if one of them happens to die, the other one might uh, die just from that emotional um, shock or, or um, sympathy. And he, he also talks about uh, this line from Spinoza, um, where Spinoza says that we, we feel and we experience that we are eternal. Uh, and Simon Don argues that this 
this feeling that Spinoza, that Spinoza is um, referring to uh, is is a real one that we do have this feeling, but what it represents or, or what it corresponds to is not something like a substantial existence of the soul after death or something like that, but it, it corresponds to the way that the dead individual lives on through other other subjects um, so that after our death, we, we live on as a sort of absence in other people's lives. And uh, it's only through that through that absence in another person's life that we have this continued existence after death. Right, and uh, so Angus has a, put a question in the chat here um, about the shared response to affective phenomena that, uh, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, so he's asking, is this like an autonomous zone of information in vital individuation? I hadn't thought of that um, exact comparison, but uh, yeah, I think that makes sense. I'm not sure, but I think so. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we can get started on the reading for today. So I this um, I think Angus, you pointed this out last time. the The whole section is one giant paragraph, so it's like a five page paragraph. So we'll just go through one page at a time uh, and uh, discuss each page as we go along. But um, I'll start. I'll read the first page or so, and uh, and then we'll stop and discuss. In subsection four: the trans individual. One can wonder to what extent such a conception of individuation can account for knowledge, affectivity, and more generally, spiritual life. Spiritual life is spoken of in a sort of abstraction. Yet this adjective does have a meaning. It indicates a value and shows that a certain mode of existence is given priority over other modes. It perhaps should not be said that there is a biological or purely bodily life and then another life, which would be spiritual life, in opposition to the first. Substantialistic dualism must be kept outside of a theory of individuation. But it is nevertheless true that spirituality exists and that it is independent of metaphysical and theological structures. When Thucydides speaks of a work of the mind, esprit, saying, Thema SIA, a possession for all time, and when Horace says, Exigi monumentum aere perennius, I have raised a monument more permanent than bronze, these men are experiencing as authors an impression of eternity. The idea of the work's immortality is merely the sensible symbol of this internal conviction, of this faith that traverses the individual being and through which the individual feels that it surpasses its own limits. When Spinoza writes, Sentimus experimurque nos aeternos esse, he reveals a very profound impression that the individual being experiences. And yet we also feel that we are not eternal, that we are fragile and transitory, that we will no longer exist when the sun will still be shining on the rocks next spring. Facing natural life, we feel that we are as perishable as the leaves of a tree. Within us, the aging of the being that passes makes tangible the precariousness that responds to this upsurge, this emergence of life radiating in other beings. The ways are diverse in the paths of life, and we intersect with other beings of all ages that are themselves in all periods of life. And even the works of the mind, esprit, age, the Ktema SIA crumbles like the walls of dead cities. The monument more durable than bronze follows the crown of laurels into universal desiccation. More slowly or quickly, prematurely like Marcellus and cut lilies, or in the fullness of the old age in a completed career, beings ascend and descend the slope without remaining long on the plateau of the present. It is only due to illusion or rather semi-blindness that spiritual life provides the unique experience of the being's eternity. The Massa Candida, the only tangible remainder of martyrs burned with quicklime, is also a testimony of spirituality through its symbolism of pitiful fragility. It is just like the monument more durable than bronze, the law engraved in tablets, or the mausoleums of the past. 
Spirituality is not merely what remains, but also what shines forth in the instant between two indefinite depths of obscurity, and then is covered over forevermore. The desperate unknown gesture of the slave in revolt is just as much spirituality as Horace's writing. Culture gives too much weight to written, spoken, expressed, or recorded spirituality. This spirituality, which tends toward eternity through its own objective forces, is nevertheless not the only one. It is only one of the two dimensions of lived spirituality. The other, that of the spirituality of the instant, which does not seek eternity and shines like the light of a glance only to fade away afterwards, also really exists. Spirituality would have no signification if there were not this luminous adherence to the present, this manifestation that gives an absolute value to the instant and consummates itself consummates within itself sensation, perception, and action. Spirituality, uh, sorry, spirituality is not another life, nor is it the same life. It is other and same. It is the signification of the coherence of the other and the same in a superior life. Spirituality is the signification of the being as separate and attached, as alone and as a member of the collective. The individuated being is both alone and not alone. It must possess both dimensions. In order for the collective to be able to exist, separated individuation must precede it and still contain the pre-individual, that through which the collective will be individuated by joining the separated being. Spirituality is the signification of the relation of the individuated being to the collective, therefore also the signification of the foundation of this relation, i.e. the fact that the individuated being is not entirely individuated but still contains a certain charge of non-individuated pre-individual reality that it preserves and respects living with the awareness of its existence instead of retreating into a substantial individuality, a false aseity. Spirituality is in this, sorry, spirituality is the respect of this relation of the individuated and the pre-individual. It is essentially affectivity and emotivity. Pleasure and pain, sadness and joy are the extreme disparities involved in this relation between that which is individual and pre-individual in the subject being. One should not speak of affective states, but rather of affective exchanges, exchanges between the pre-individual and the individuated within the subject being. Affectivo emotivity is a movement between the natural undetermined and the here and now of actual existence. It is that through which this rise of the undetermined toward the present occurs within the subject, a rise that will incorporate the subject into the collective. Pleasure and pain are generally interpreted as signifying that a favorable or unfavorable life event emerges and affects the being. In fact, the signification does not exist at the level of the pure individuated being. There may be purely somatic pains and pleasures, but affective or emotive modes also have a signification in the accomplishment of the relation between what is individual and pre-individual. Positive affective states indicate the synergy between the constituted individuality and the movement of the actual individuation of the pre-individual. Negative affective states are states of conflict between these two domains of the subject. Um, yeah, so there's a lot in this passage. Um, there, there's a few um, references that are worth um, uh, pointing to um, before we before we sort of analyze. Um, so there's this this line from Thucydides um, where he says um, that his work, uh, his his history, is uh, a possession for all time. And this line from Horace, where he says uh, that he's raised a monument more permanent than bronze. So these are, are both classical authors um, who, uh, who um, present the, their works as being um, uh, eternal or as uh, more lasting than, um, 
than something like uh, a physical monument. Um, so the, the, these are works of spirit um, uh, or of spirituality um, that have this uh, quality of permanence to them. Uh, and then there's this um, uh, reference to the Masa Candida, which um, um, uh, Angus has posted in the chat here, the reference. Um, this is something that I actually did not look up, um, but um, it has to do with, um, right, yeah, so these are um, early Christian martyrs who were killed by being thrown into a pit of burning lime, which sounds pretty horrible. Um, they, um, and uh, so their, their body is, um, their body is uh, reduced to um, a white powder, uh, which is what the literal meaning of Masa Candida is. Um, so, um, yeah, th th this is um, a sort of um, uh, relic of, uh, of these early martyrs um, that uh, is a, a testimony to some to um, spirituality in the sense, not, not of uh, necessarily of religion, but as something that is um, higher than everyday life or, or has a, a superior in nature to everyday life. So these were people who, um, you know, sacrificed their lives to um, uh, in service of something that is uh, um, superior to everyday life. Um, right. So then, yeah. So we have this um, this opposition between the um, eternal aspect of spirituality. So we have this um, um, this aspect where spirituality is um, uh, produces something that has this value of immortality or of permanence um, in the in the way that uh, Horace and Thucydides um, depict it. Um, um, but there's this other side, um, this other feeling as well. So we, we don't only feel that we are eternal, we also feel that we are uh, transitory. Um, so uh, Anyone who um, is past their twenties or so probably recognizes, um, uh, you know, feelings of uh, starting to get old. Um, you know, things that you used to be able to do you can't do anymore, or um, uh, you know, you wake up with like aches in your joints or whatever, and uh, um, yeah, you, you just have this feeling of. Um, you know, feeling that you're sort of beyond your your physical prime, um, yeah, lingering back pain, exactly. Um, so something like that, uh, uh, you know, is a is a sort of um, uh, sign of of uh, uh, approaching mortality, um, even if it might be a long way away. Um, you still uh, have this feeling of um, transitoriness of of uh, how the world is going to continue um, after you're gone in uh, uh, in the same way as it, as it, it does um, when other people die. Um, so we have this, this feeling of transitoriness as well. Um, and there's another aspect of spirituality which, um, which uh, corresponds to this uh, transitory aspect. So the, the, um, the action of the slave uh, trying to escape, um, you know, that that might never be recorded in history, that might never be um, 
something that that lasts um, that longer than bronze or or than a some sort of monument or something like that. But there's a, a certain spirituality to that gesture in the sense that the the slave um, is willing to sacrifice their their life for the sake of freedom. Um, the you know rather than just obeying and uh, staying safe for a while, they uh, they're willing to try to escape or to um, fight back against the master or um, whatever the the specific circumstances are. Um, so uh, we have these two sides of spirituality, um, which uh, um, they're not. There, there's no sort of hierarchy between them. There's not. Um, it's not that the permanent is somehow superior to the the transitory. Uh, each each dimension of spirituality has its own um, uh, value or its own um, uh, consistency. It's not really dependent on the other. Um, and then spirituality also has to do with um, the collective. So there's uh, there's uh, spirituality is not something that can be. Uh, accomplished or um, brought about by an individual, uh, properly speaking, there. Uh, in order for something like uh, a work of of art or um, uh, some action to be uh, uh, permanent and uh, last longer than bronze, um, it has to be preserved in in history. It has to be um, passed down uh, to succeeding generations and so on. Um, so it, it's only through the collective that uh, an action or a work of art or whatever it is uh, takes on this uh, character of permanence um, in the same way that uh, individual human beings, we live on only through other people's work uh, of, of remembering. Uh, and then, yeah, so spirituality in general has to do with the relation of the individual to the collective. Um, and it's only because the individual is not um, sort of a self-contained substance that this relation to the collective is possible. Uh, so the individual uh, is not fully individuated. There's always some uh, remnant of the pre-individual within the individual. And it's through that pre-individuality um, that, that the individual is able to uh, undergo a new process of individuation uh, in the collective. And then we have this, um, uh, this, well, this is just the beginning that in the passage that we just read, um, there's more as we go along, but the, there's this depiction of, um, um, affectivity, uh, and emotivity, uh, as, as having to do with, um, this polarization of the subject. Uh, and we've seen similar types of arguments about polarization uh, in, in previous passages. Um, but uh, the idea here is that in affectivity, the subject is um, sort of uh, taking place or, or occupying a, a position within the um, polarization between um, pleasure and pain or uh, between sadness and joy or um, whatever other pairs of uh, emotional states we, we want to specify. And he's going to um, 
go into this in more detail a little bit later uh, and, and explain some of the relationships between uh, the, the different pairs of, of, uh, uh, of states like pleasure and pain versus sadness and joy, um, to what extent these are um, interchangeable uh, or, or what relation they have with each other. Uh, and then he also suggests here that of affectivity, um, not as a state, um, but rather we should talk about affective exchanges. So there's something like an exchange between the pre-individual and the individual within the subject, uh, or um, uh, this is what affectivity consists in, is some sort of exchange or this um, process, we can say, um, that uh, um, rather than uh, a state that the subject uh, is in. Uh, okay, uh, so we can go on to, um, oh, sorry, actually there's, uh, I missed the, the comment here from Angus, um, which has to do with um, these two dimensions of spirituality. Um, so we have this uh, uh, active slash eternal aspect, which corresponds to science, and then the emotive slash momentary, which corresponds to faith. Um, yeah, so that's uh, something that comes up a little bit later. Um, the relation, the um, the relationship between spirituality and then science and faith. So we'll we'll get to that in a little bit, um, and we can we can discuss that then. Um, but there's always both. Um, yes, that's that's correct. Um, so um, it's only because it's only because there's um, spirituality in the proper sense that something like uh, um, something like science and faith is is possible. Um, so uh, science and faith are, are derived from spirituality um, rather than uh, the other way around. Uh, okay, so let's go on to the next bit from the top of uh, 279. Uh, affective emotivity is not merely uh, if someone else would like to read. Uh, I can read this uh, a page or so. <clears throat> Affectivo emotivity is not merely the reverberation of the results of action within the individual being. It is a transformation. It plays an active role. Affectivo emotivity expresses the rapport between the two domains of the subject being and modifies action in accordance with this rapport harmonizing it with this rapport and attempting to harmonize the collective. The expression of affectivity in the collective has a regulative value. Pure action would not be able to regulate the manner in which the pre-individual is individuated in different subjects in order to found the collective. Emotion is this individuation on the way to being effectuated in trans-individual presence, but affectivity itself proceeds and follows emotion within the subject being. Within the subject being it is what translates and perpetuates the possibility of individuation in the collective. Affectivity is what leads the charge of pre-individual nature to become the support of collective individuation. It is mediation between that which is pre-individual and that which is individual. It is the manifestation and reverberation in the subject of the encounter and the encounter and emotion of presence of action. Without presence and action, effective emotivity cannot be expressed and accomplished. Action doesn't just resolve the perceptive problem through the encounter of perceptive worlds. Action qua emotion resolves the affective problem. 
which is that of the incompatible bidimensionality of pleasure and joy. Emotion, the individualized side of action, resolves the affective problem that parallels the perceptive problem action resolves. Action is for perception what emotion is for affectivity. The discovery of a superior order of compatibility, of a synergy, of a resolution through the passage to a higher level of metastable equilibrium. Emotion implies the presence of the subject to other subjects or to a world that calls the subject into question as a subject. It is thus parallel to action, linked, linked to action, but it assumes affectivity. It is the point where affective plurality is inserted into a unity of signification. Emotion is the signification of affectivity in the same way that action is the signification of perception. Affectivity can therefore be considered as the foundation of emotivity, just as perception can be considered as the foundation of action. Emotion is that which within action is turned toward the individual participating in the collective, whereas action is that which within the same collective expresses the individual being in the actuality of the realized mediation. Action and emotion are correlative, but action is collective individuation grasped from the side of the collective in its relational aspect, while emotion is the same individuation of the collective grasped in the individual being insofar as it participates in this individuation. In the individual being, or rather in the subject, perception and affectivity uh, are more separate than action and emotion are in the collective. But the collective only establishes this reciprocity of action and emotion in presence. In the subject, affectivity has a content of spirituality greater than that of perception, at least seemingly, because perception reassures the subject and essentially makes use of the structures and functions already constituted within the individuated being. On the contrary, affectivity indicates and comprises this relation between the individualized being and pre-individual reality. Thus, to a certain extent, affectivity is uh, heterogeneous relative to individualized reality and seems to bring to it something from the outside, indicating to it that it is not a complete and self-enclosed ensemble of reality. The problem of the individual is that of perceptive worlds. But the problem of the subject is that of the heterogeneity between perceptive worlds and the affective world, between the individual and the pre-individual. This problem is that of the subject qua subject. The subject is individual and other than individual. It is incompatible with itself. Uh, so one question I have about this section is, I mean, it doesn't seem like you're saying that the individual can't act on its own, like can't resolve perceptive, you know, disparate perceptive worlds. And it seems like action, at least in this part I was just reading, is specifically the action of the collective. And there's another kind of action uh, that the individual can kind of take on its own. But I don't know if that's true of emotion. It seems like for emotion, 
to resolve this affective problem because it because it entails the whole subject, which is individual and pre-individual, you really need the collective. Seems right to me. The second part, at least, seems right to me. Um, yeah, so emo emotion is something that um, is, is only, properly speaking, present in the collective. Um, there's, um, uh, or there's, at least even in the case of an individual subject, um, there is uh emotion is the insertion of that subject into the collectivity um but uh the first part um i'm not sure if action is something that um yeah i think action is something that he would also want to see as having to do with the collective um um Uh, and yeah, I'm not sure if he would want to make a distinction between two different kinds of action um, and then say that um, like there's a collective action and an individual action. I think he would want, want us to stay at the level of the collective uh, in action. So even when it's an individual, um, um, even when it's an individual there that is performing some action, they do so insofar as they're part of a collective. Um, so the, the question here, is, as Angus has put it in the chat, is um, so if, if there is no um, individual action, if action is always uh, at the level of the collective, then wouldn't individuals live in a confusion of unresolved perceptive worlds? Um, I'm not sure if confusion is the right word, but uh, I think for Simon Dome, uh, it's only at the level of the collective that we can actually resolve um, these problems that appear at a level of the individual subject, um, so that um, within the subject, there's no resolution to the problem of uh, uh, the different perception, perceptive worlds, um, or um, something like um, disparation between different worlds. Uh, it's only at the level of the collective that that you're capable of resolving this problem. And that doesn't necessarily mean that um, you have to sort of get together in a group with your friends to um, to be able to see anything or something like that. Um, but it, it means that um, the that perception uh, is is sort of inherently incomplete, uh, and it's only insofar as as you um, um, insofar as you're inserted into um, um, into a collective uh, and undergo collective individuation, it's only to that extent that you're capable of um, resolving the problems of perception. Uh, yeah, so the individual can perceive but not act um, in this specific sense of the word action. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think um, I think maybe I would put it in a different way. I would say that insofar as the individual acts, they're part of a collective. Uh, or they're they're undergoing something like a collective individuation, um, and um, I think we can maybe tie this back into the way that affectivity, um, um, the way that affectivity has to do, or, or the way that Simon Dump um, related affectivity to group differentiation. Um, so if we 
act we're um, acting in accordance with some set of uh, values or or um, just in virtue of acting we're um, implicitly setting out one course of action as better than another um, uh, and and so there's something like um, uh, a hierarchy of valuation that is already built into action uh, and and so I think to that extent we're um, we're sort of tied into something that is greater than just the individual who is performing that action um, yeah I think yeah I don't know this this passage here is, is one of the more difficult ones in the book um, even compared to the quantum physics stuff that we uh, that we saw a couple months ago. Um, but yeah, I, I take it that um, it's not so much that the individual is not capable of acting, it's that insofar as the individual acts, they are inserting themselves into, into a collective uh, or into something that is um, greater than the individual themselves. Uh, and then we have another comment from uh, Pretzel. Um, so it sounded like emotion was the residual or remainder of the actions in the collective acting on the individual. Um, is that following the structuration of the dynamic correctly? And then perception is constrained by the social. Um, I think, um, I don't think he would use the term residual or, or remainder or something like that. Um, I think he would want us to see the um, emotion and action as sort of two sides of the same coin or as, as two correlated aspects of the same um, underlying reality. So um, in the collective, um, uh, in collective individuation, there's um, one side that, that leads to action and there's another side that leads to emotion. And, and these are sort of two sides of the same coin. Uh, and so you can't really have, um, uh, you can't really have um, something that um, that uh, that would correspond to one side without the other. Um, and then, yeah, so another question from from Pretzel: How is it? Uh, how or what is it acting from the collective on the individual? Is Simonov's claim that some affect arises from the social in an interpsychic process, or is that emotion? Um, uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the way that um, the way that I would understand it is that uh, the we we have to distinguish between the individual and the subject. Um, so that uh, the subject is a is a greater reality than the individual um, because the subject contains both the individual. Uh, um, as a, a product of individuation and also um, some aspect of the of the pre-individual reality. Um, and so it's insofar as the subject is uh, still contains the pre-individual that they're capable of undergoing collective individuation and uh, affectivity um, has to do with that layer of the pre-individual um, that that still subsists within the subject. Um, yeah, and then yeah, so 
we can make the uh, comparison. So affect is to emotion as action is to perception. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's how he sets it out. Um, but um, yeah, so I, I'm not sure what the um, uh, what are the, what are the arrows, lines, uh, vectors across the matrix. Um, yeah, I think if I understand correctly, the the question has to do with what what the um, how you get from one side to the other, or something like that, or or how you get from affectivity to um, to uh, to action. Um, um, yeah, so I hmm, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, so there's there's definitely a connection between the two sides. Um, so it's um, I think the way that they they're connected is um that they both they both have the same type of uh they both are instances of the same type of process of problem solving um so that um in the way that perception um poses problems and then action uh is is a way of solving that problem um likewise you have uh, an affective problem um so you have um in in the case of uh affectivity you have um you have this these two sides of um or these two directions uh of pain and pleasure or or um sadness and joy um and then an emotional state or or an emotional condition is a, a way of resolving that um bi-directionality or a way of um occupying some region of the um, affective space, I guess you can say. Um, yeah, this this is one of the more difficult passages of the book. So it's, it's hard for me to um, explain some of the relationships of what's going on here. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think that's how we should be thinking about it as um, two, um, two different um two different problem solving processes that um are are sort of coordinate to each other in that sense like insofar as they're um both problem solving processes uh, and then angus also had a question um if the individual if the individual participates in the collective through action does this mean that any valuation requires the collective or are there other valuations that correspond to the inter-individual and societal um, yeah, that's that's a good question too. Um, uh, I'm not sure if he, um, I'm not sure if he really talks about the other two um, um, sort of forms of of groups that uh, that he brought up um, a while ago now that we saw maybe a month ago a month ago or, or so. Um, he he tends to focus on the the collective <clears throat> the collective in the proper sense um i think because this is what's new or or um particular to his account uh and so he focuses on that um but uh i would think that he would want to say that um that there would be something like uh valuation in uh in the social, uh, uh, in the societal, and uh, the inter-individual, um, 
but that uh, not everything that the subject does constitutes action in the proper sense of the term. So action uh, insofar, so action is, is a specific um, term. So not every, like, you know, I don't know, brushing your teeth in the morning or whatever is not uh, an action in, in the specific sense that Simon is using the term here. Um, because action has to do with um, uh, resolving a problem of some kind. Uh, and so um, other, um, yeah, other, other types of, um, maybe we can use the term behavior of human beings would fit, in, would fit into the inter-individual or the societal. Um, and so they wouldn't necessarily, uh, they wouldn't constitute actions, but we could still um, derive something like a valuation from that behavior. Okay, um, let's go on to the next bit. Uh, I forget exactly where we stopped. Um, where do you, Angus, do you remember where you stopped at the, the last uh, reading? Oh, um, uh, yeah. Or Elle, do you, uh, do you remember where we stopped exactly? Yeah, it is incompatible with itself. Hi. Um, it is incompatible with uh, itself. That sounds right. Okay, uh, do you want to read the next page or so then, Al? Uh, yeah, sure, sure, I can read a little. Uh, action uh, cannot resolve the problems of perception, uh, nor can emotion solve the problems of uh, affectivity unless action and emotion are complementary, symbolic with respect to one another. Within the unity of the collect for there to be a resonance of action and emotion, there must be a superior individuation that envelops them. Uh, this individuation is that of the collective. The subject can only co coincide with itself in the individual because the individuated being and the pre-individual being within it cannot coincide directly. Uh, there is desperation uh, between perceptions and affectivity, even if perceptions could find their unity in an action that would systematize them. This systematization would remain foreign to affectivity and would not satisfy the search of uh, spirituality. Spirituality is neither in pure affectivity nor in the pure resolution of perceptive problems. Even if emotion could resolve per, uh, affective problems, uh, even if action could resolve uh, perceptive problems, there would still be an impossible gap for the being affectivity and perception, which would have become a unity of emotion and a unity of action. But the very these synthesis is problematic in their respective isolation. These synthesis uh, synthesis uh, would be much more uh, so common perceptions and affective results, common feelings rather than veritable actions or veritable emotions with their own internal unity. What creates the condition of the unity of veritable action and veritable emotion is the reciprocity between perceptions and, and affections within the nation collective action arise when the collective individuates. Uh, for the subject, the collective is the reciprocity of affectivity and perception. A, a reciprocity that unifies the, uh, these two domains each in itself by giving them an additional dimension. In the active course of the universalized world of action, 
There is an imminence of possible emotion. Emotion is the polarity of this world, both vis-a-vis the subject and objects. This world has a meaning and direction because it is oriented. And it is oriented because the subject orients itself in the world according to its emotion. Emotion is not just an internal change, a turmoil of the individuated being and modification of structures. It is also a certain momentum across a universe that has a meaning and a direction. It is the meaning of um, and the direction of action. Emotion structures the being topologically. Emotion is prolonged in the world as action, just as action is prolonged in the subject as emotion. A transductive series goes from pure action to pure emotion. This has nothing to do with physical types, isolated operations, or isolated states. This is the very reality that we grasp abstractly in its two extreme terms by believing that they suffice unto themselves and can be studied. In fact, it would be necessary to be able to grasp action emotion at its center, at the limit between the subject and the world, at the limit between the individual being and the collective. One would then understand that's the union of these two opposite sides of action and emotion, ascending toward the same summit. The side of action expresses emerges from the subject and is established in object of eternity in a moment uh, in a moment <laughs> a monument <laughs> more durable than bronze through language an institution art or a nerve the side of emotion expresses spirituality insofar as it pen- penetrates the subject flowing back into it and filling the subject in the instant rendering it symbolic relative to itself reciprocal relative to itself, comprehended uh, relative to what engulfs it. To oppose the humanism of constructive action with the interiority of withdrawal into emotion is to divide the subject to fail to grasp the conditional reality of the collective within this reciprocity of emotion and action. After this division, all that remains is the impoverished image of action its structure transformed into nothing residual sediment of a monument of indifferent eternity, i.e. science facing science, internalized emotion separated from its support and its condition of appearing, which is the collective undergoing individuation, becomes faith, emotion deprived of action, something maintained by means of the voluntary renewal of the collective subjugated to this function of sustaining emotion via rituals or spiritual practice. This rupture between action and emotion creates science and faith, which are two separate existences, two irreconcilable existences, because no individuation can reunite them, and no transductive series can connect external or poor can exist between these two ways of being that deny trans-individuality in its real form. Science and faith are the debris of a spirituality that has failed and that divides the subject and pits the subject against itself, instead of leading the subject to discover a signification relative to the collective. Spiritual unity resides in its transductive rapport 
between action and emotion. This rapport could be called wisdom, a condition of not thereby understanding it as humanist wisdom. Neither an appeal to immanence nor an appeal to transcendence, neither naturalism nor she can account for this transcendence. The being must uh, be distinguished in its own milieu. The individual man does not produce his work starting from his human essence. For man as species, according to a classification through common genius and specific differences, nor is spiritual unity a power that is fully external to man and that would be expressed through man by depriving him of his consistency and interiority. This opposition is futile. It translates the problematic characteristic of the complete human being, but it does not get substantialized in terms of clarity instead of seeing the meaning of this in the exact human there are options for humanism or for a theory of transcendence but both of these oppositions are halting points in the examination that provides these two dimensional paths one exploits man as a subject of science exploits man as a theater of faith right thanks um yeah, that's um, there's no good stopping point within that passage, even though there's there's a lot of different ideas. Um, it all sort of flows from one from one idea to the next. Um, um, yeah, so maybe we can start with this idea of um, um, emotion and action as um, as um, uh, part of as two extremes of a continuum, uh, and then um, the the problem that that we have uh, for us here is to um, to sort of grasp the center of that continuum uh, rather than just the two endpoints. Uh, and this is, um, I think I mentioned this last time or, or the time before. Um, there's this. Uh, uh, sort of recurring move that Simon Don does is when he takes these two opposition, two opposed um, uh, positions or two opposed um, entities or or concepts or whatever, uh, and then he he says that we need to um, see them as uh, extremes on a continuum, and we need to grasp the midpoint of that continuum rather than uh, starting from the two extremes and then trying to find a, a way of reconciling the two or something like. That. Um, yeah, so we have affect, uh, sorry, emotion and action as as two extremes on on a continuum, and um, the the way that um, um, as as uh, Angus mentioned earlier, we have this um, this way of sort of separating the the two extremes uh, that results in what we call science and faith. Um, and so science is um, uh, action, uh, corresponds to the side of action um, separated from, from emotion, whereas faith would be, um, um, would be emotion um, separate from, from action. So it would be a, a sort of pure emotion. Um, and uh, so Simondon, suggests here that um, 
trying to uh, sort of reconcile science and faith as, as you know, sometimes uh, in like pop philosophy, you have like these um, arguments about why, you know, science and faith go together or, or whatever, or uh, on the other hand, you might have arguments for why one is superior to the other. Um, and all of these types of arguments for Simon Dons are sort of missing the point, which is the that middle ground or or that um, midpoint of the continuum uh, uh, from which action and emotion proceed, uh, and and so that's the the point that we should be trying to grasp, rather than trying to um, start from this opposition between the two and then try to reconcile them or or something like that. Um, Instead, we we start from the midpoint between the two, and then we we see how each of them um, arises from that midpoint, or or is um, uh, is oriented around that midpoint. Uh, and then, yeah, so he talks about um, humanism here, which is an interesting uh, uh, point, um, you know, because this was something that um, in a little bit later than when this was published. So in like the late 60s, um, there was a lot of um, sort of controversy or or discussion around the, the concept of humanism within French philosophy. Um, you have um, Sartre has his essay on uh, existentialism and the humanism. Uh, and then you have um, uh, Heidegger's letter on humanism as a response to that. Uh, and then uh, sort of in parallel, you have um, Althusser, uh, who is arguing against what he considers to be a humanist interpretation of Marxism. Uh, and, and then you have people like Foucault, who um, uh, talks about the, the death of man, um, like the end of the sort of era of uh, the human as a, as a category of, uh, of discourse. Um, so all of these different ideas around humanism are sort of in the air. Uh, and Simondon is a little bit earlier than than some of those um, uh, texts that I mentioned, but he um, he talks about humanism here as having to do with action, um, and and he uh, he suggests that this is a is a sort of limited form of of humanism, uh, or or this is. Um, Humanism in this sense would be objectionable because it's limited. Uh, it it doesn't. Um, so insofar as as uh, we can think of um, this the sort of like humanistic ideal of scholarship um, and uh, or of uh, um, um, not just a scholarship but of uh, producing something that um, that is supposed to last. Um, beyond your lifetime and, and the, the work of art or a work of science or, or something uh, along those lines. Um, and um, this, this sort of humanism um, is, uh, is, is limited because it doesn't have, um, it doesn't, it's not united with emotion or it's not, um, it's not proceeding from that midpoint between action and emotion. Uh, and so the the sort of logical step would be to think that it, it, we must need to um, uh, sort of integrate that humanism with emotion um, in some way. But uh, Simondon argues that this is already uh, sort of presupposing that opposition. 
and and so it it divides the subject into um so you you're dividing the subject into a an emotional and a, a an active side um so he he suggests the term that he suggests that we use instead is wisdom uh and um so this wisdom is i don't know probably the best translation you can give but it's not um it doesn't have quite the same resonance as uh sagesse in, in french um because um um sagesse suggests something like um uh an ethical wisdom i guess like wisdom we i think we would think of as like uh having to do more with knowledge um and uh experience and and like understanding how things work or something like that um whereas sagesse in in french has the the meaning of or the connotation of um having having to do with an ethics or with um with action in a way that the uh the uh, english term doesn't i think um but i don't think there's a really a better translation besides wisdom um but yeah so just sort of keep that in mind i guess when 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 you see wisdom here that it's it's not um not restricted to um what we might call wisdom in english but it, it has a, a a meaning that it's related to action and to um something like an ethics. Uh, and then he also uh, he also suggests or he warns against um, uh, sort of understanding wisdom to mean a humanist wisdom. So this would be something like, um, uh, I don't know, reading ancient philosophers and cultivating your um, your life in uh, in I don't know, in line with Plato's dialogues or in line with Stoicism or or whatever ancient doctrine that you want to um, pick up. Uh, so this would be a kind of um, uh, humanist wisdom. Uh, and and this is it's not that that's like bad or something like that. It's just that it uh, is a sort of limited form of, uh, of wisdom. And uh, what Simondon wants to get at is um, some sort of... Uh, unity uh uh like that midpoint between um between action and emotion that that constitutes the spiritual for him uh and so we have to uh it, it always involves a um a creation or a resolution of a problem it's not something that can be sort of uh like passively received from ancient writers or something like that oh uh, so yeah uh, can i can i talk about that's a little different than uh, what we're saying <laughs> oh sure yeah uh so uh, there was like uh when i was uh, at school a uh, very like a very little child uh, uh in a catholic school it was like pretty harsh and we have like this faith teacher who uh, you know the type who would only post uh pictures of Jesus and Mary all over her Facebook and um, like she was very religious and she used to beat us and bloody us we would you would like all the students would go back home full of bruises and some of them were full of blood and stuff like that she was extremely harsh with us um, and uh, her brother is like uh, a nuclear scientist you know like into science is like the opposite of her and uh, 
he's like the student of my uncle. My uncle is like a famous uh, nuclear physicist in France. And uh, uh, there's this, you know, opposite uh, combination, like the, the coupling of the faith and the science in, the fa in their family. And uh, like they reminded me recently, like I've been attending a lot of classes which are like very scientific and like philosophy based. Uh, there's this like vibe of uh, new people coming to our classes and they're like trying to make, uh, turn our classes into a dictatorship. And uh, they're cutting our uh, natural uh, behavior, like the way we behave, the way we sit, the way we uh, interact with people. They're like being extremely brutal with us. And uh, they're uh, pretending it's in the name of science, but, you know, like they're uh, sent mainly by uh, Italy. And uh, they also like kind of pretend that they're scientists, atheists, but... Um, they're uh, uh, kind of like uh, remind me so much of that teacher. <laughs> uh, we had to like all run away from the school and they, they even shut down the school because of uh, extreme violence that happened in the school. Um, I mean, um, like they, I think it was like a kind of a coupling between science and uh, religion, but like it was extremely unsuccessful. And um, I'm, I'm kind of still seeing it everywhere happening nowadays, especially on this uh, philosophy app that like, I keep attending all of its classes. It's called Meetup app. Do you have that app, by the way? Uh, Meetup, like the website, uh, meetup.com? It's, it's, it's in the app store. You download it on the phone and you can attend philosophy classes all day. Oh, okay. Hmm. No, I don't, I don't know that. Hmm. Yeah, it's called Meetup. It's very interesting. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I'm see like uh, this paragraph kind of reminded me of, uh, you know, the difference between science and faith. But like I've seen it in the same family and, uh, and it's uh, kind of uh, uh, reflecting in the world, world in a way, but like in a vulgar way, like in a very violent way. Like they're unable to try apply uh, faith and science together. It's kind of getting extremely back to violence <laughs> you know we might have to shut down some of those classes again just like she like they shut down our school <laughs> sorry to interrupt I, I went out of topic a little bit no that's that's great yeah that's um I, um i'm glad that you um brought that up because i think um i think you can have something like a faith in science um which maybe is, is sort of paradoxical in in this um um schema that 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 Simondon is setting up, but um there can be people that that sort of treat science as a as a religion um and uh um so it's something that they they have this sort of emotional attachment to um in the way that they um they have this sort of strict understanding of like you know, this is science and, and this is what science tells us. And, and, uh, um, you have to sort of, um, follow these precepts in order to be like, uh, living a scientific life or, or something like that. Um, and, uh, it's a, it's a sort of narrow, um, narrowing of, of human possibilities that, um, rejects anything outside of what they can sort of fit into a, a specific worldview that they consider scientific um and and so i think that um it, it's 
even though it, it, it does seem uh, paradoxical in a sense, um, when we when we sort of compare that to what Simundo is saying here, um, I think it it's probably um, uh, a consequence of the way that science and and faith are these two sort of opposed um, um, positions that that are taken um, to be to be opposites of each other and and sort of self subsisting and and uh, consistent holes. Um, rather than having some sort of understanding of the the spiritual um that would be um something that is prior to science and faith um in those restricted senses um but yeah that sounds like um a difficult situation so um uh i'm glad that um we don't have that going on here no thank Garland's here. It's just on the other app. Yeah, the online online philosophy spaces are always weird because uh, you know we try to make things open and and you know have people with different backgrounds. Some people might have studied philosophy in school. Some people might not. Um, and like, you want to um, sort of be accommodating to everyone but that also means that people can sort of disrupt things in uh, in a pretty easy way um so it, it's a sort of um we've been lucky i think so far um we haven't had any like we had one instance of a troll but they were just like completely um uh uh obvious and then we just banned them right away and, and so it wasn't a big deal um but we haven't really had people that come in and, and sort of um disrupt on a regular basis or something like that um but yeah it, it's it's hard to um i think um it's hard to find the the right balance between like letting everyone participate and and being accommodating and everything uh on the one hand and then also like not allowing one person or, or a small group of people to um disrupt everything and and uh make it make it um uh, un unfruitful for other people. Yeah, no, the, uh, the intruders uh, are new uh, to our classes and they are not teachers. They only attend uh, just like us, but they try to take control of the class and uh, order everybody the way they want, you know. Uh, it's uh, The classes are kind of losing control. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's, it's difficult on, in like online spaces where it's, it's it's not quite like a, a real life university or or other classroom where you have some sort of institution and you can say like you know you're kicked out of this institution or something like that you can't like you can you can ban someone from a server but they can always just rejoin under a different name or or something like that um but yeah that's, that's a bit of an aside but i think it's um it's uh helpful to try to apply some of these concepts and see how they fit with our own lives and our, our own experiences. Um, so, so yeah, that's, um, you know, if anyone has like, you know, examples or, or things like that, that they want to bring up, then, uh, yeah, like, I think that's perfectly reasonable, um, uh, way of approaching these types of texts that are, um, very difficult to, uh, to just sort of read abstractly. Um, Let's go on to the next section. Uh, I think this is relatively short, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, it's only a couple pages, so I think we should have time to finish this section. 
or a subsection, I should say, um, before uh, before we run out of time today. Okay, um, I'll read uh, a page or so. Actually, uh, yeah, I'll read. This uh, section is only two paragraphs, so I guess I'll read one one big one, and then we'll um, discuss. Okay, subsection five, anxiety. We can also reflect on the signification of certain feelings that seem to be at the same time emotions, such as anxiety. Anxiety can neither be identified with a feeling nor with an emotion alone. As a feeling, anxiety indicates the possibility of a separation between the nature associated with the individuated being and this individuated being. In anxiety, the subject feels itself to be a subject to the extent that it is negated. It bears its own existence in itself. It is weighed down by its existence as if it had to carry itself. A burden of the earth, actos arudes, as Homer says, but also a burden to itself. Uh, since the individuated being, instead of having the ability to find the solution to the problem of perceptions and the problem of affectivity, feels all problems flowing back into it. In anxiety, the subject feels as if it exists as a problem posed to itself, and it feels its division into pre-individual nature and individuated being. The individuated being is here and now, and this here and now prevents an infinity of other here and nows from coming into existence. The subject becomes conscious of itself as nature, as undetermined aperon, and as something that it will never be able to actualize into a here and now, that it will never be able to live. Anxiety is diametrically opposed to the movement through which one takes refuge in one's individuality. In anxiety, the subject would like to resolve itself without going through the collective. It would like to come to the level of its unity by way of a resolution of its pre-individual being into an individual being, a direct resolution without mediation or delay. Anxiety is an emotion without action, a feeling without perception. It is the pure reverberation of the being within itself. Of course, waiting and the passing of time can appear in anxiety, but it cannot be said that they produce anxiety, because even when anxiety is not present, it is in preparation. The charge of anxiety is in the process of being aggravated before spreading throughout the whole being. The anxious being requests to itself, requests the silent and concealed action that can only be emotion, because it does not have the individuation of the collective to be resolved as a problem. The subject becomes conscious of itself as subject suffering anxiety, calling itself into question without being able really to uh, without being able to really unify itself. Anxiety is always taking itself back up and does not advance or construct, but it profoundly calls upon the being and makes it become re reciprocal with respect to itself. In anxiety, the being is like its own object, but an object as important as itself. It could be said that the subject becomes object and witnesses its own expansion according to dimensions it cannot assume. The subject becomes world and fills all this space and time in which problems emerge. There is no longer a world nor problem that is not a problem of the subject. This universal counter subject that develops is like a night that constitutes the very being of the subject in every point. The subject adheres to everything as it adheres to itself. It is no longer localized. It is universalized according to a passive adhesion that makes it suffer. The subject dilates painfully by losing its interiority. It is here and elsewhere. Detached from here by a universal elsewhere, it assumes all space and all time, without coextensive, uh, becomes coextensive with being, spatializes, temporalizes, becomes uncoordinated world. Um, let's see. Oh, sorry. Yeah, having a discussion about Lacan in, in the chat here. Um, um, uh, yeah, so this, again, is a, a, fairly, a fairly dense 
passage um, um, but so this this notion of anxiety um, uh, again is something that um, was sort of in the air um, with uh, uh, existentialism in particular. Um, um, there's there's um, this notion of anxiety as um, some sort of uh, revelation of the subject. Um, or, or some sort of uh, way that the subject is revealed to themselves. Um, and then, but the way Simon Dome presents it here is uh, as a, a sort of failure um, rather than uh, something that, uh, um, something that is like uh, an achievement um, so that um, for, um, yeah, so this is something we, we also see um, in uh, other writers of the time uh, and other terms like dread or, or angst. Um, so that, um, um, yeah, I think Heidegger is one of the first ones to really make um, uh, make use of this term, but I think he also derives it from Kierkegaard. Um, um, but Kierkegaard is someone that I don't really know at all. So um, I, I, I can't really say. Um, but uh, here for Simon Don, anxiety is, is a kind of failure so that um, it, it has to do with uh, the subject uh, insofar as they are um, separated from a collective so that they, they're um, sort of withdrawn into themselves. And uh, um, it's, it's a, a sort of purely emotional response to, uh, to a, a problem. Um, and it's insofar as the subject is incapable of acting, that they feel this um, anxiety. Um, and then, so it's because in anxiety, um, there's no uh, relation to a collective. It, and because of this, um, there's, no, uh, there's no resolution of a problem. Uh, like the, the problem that, um, that affectivity sets for itself can't be resolved. It's, um, um, it's something that uh, that uh, is posed as a problem for the subject. Uh, it, it remains as a problem for the subject. Um, yeah, so it's anxiety contingent in the same way that the collective is, or otherwise um, everyone would be anxious all the time. Um, yeah, so I think, um, yeah, it's it's not something um, it's not something that is sort of a permanent part of the human condition or something like that. Um, it's a, um, this would be um, sort of a, a failed attempt at, um, at, uh, um, at collective individuation. So that uh, it's only insofar as there's, um, um, it's only insofar as you have like an attempt towards collective individuation that you could end up with anxiety. So, um, yeah. So if there's a problem, um, you it can either give rise to anxiety or the collective. I think that's a good way of putting it. Uh, yeah. And and then um, again, a question from Pretzel. So um, an alienation may bring about anxiety. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. I think Simon Don in um, 
in the mode of existence of technical objects, I think he um, he's a bit critical of the the notion of of alienation um, in that book uh, because he well he thinks that um, um, alienation as a as a um, alienation from the um, uh, means of production is a sort of secondary phenomenon for him. And uh, what what is more fundamental is alienation from the uh, essence the, of technology. Um, so that, um, <laughs> yeah, we have some very strange pictures in the chat here of praying mantises dressed up in human clothes. And I think they're supposed to, um, uh, um make us feel anxious um um sorry i'm just distracting a little bit um yeah so there's uh alienation is a concept that simon don i think doesn't really want to take as fundamental um um and uh he wants to see alienation as deriving from um from something more fundamental, which would be um, this sort of uh, ignorance about the essence of technology of, and the genesis of technology, um, a, a genetic essence, I guess, um, so that uh, it's it's only insofar as we have this um, ignorance about technology that we have something like alienation from uh, from technical reality. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's hard to sort of line up uh, Simon Don's conceptual um, schema uh, uh, with uh, a Marxist concept of alienation. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if, um, yeah, I don't think it would be, um, um, it would be possible to really say that uh, anxiety arises as a result of alienation. Um, Okay, so we can go on to the next um, paragraph, which will take us to the end of this uh, subsection. Uh, if someone else would like to read. Uh, I can read again. We're at this immense expansion. Yeah, that's right. This immense expansion of the being, this limitless dilation that removes all refuge and all interiority, expresses the fusion within the being between the charge of nature associated with the individual being and its individuality. The structures and functions of the individuated being are mixed with one another and dilated because they receive from the charge of nature this power of being without limits. The individuated is suffused by the pre-individual. All the structures are attacked and the functions are animated by a new force that renders them incoherent. If the experience of anxiety could be adequately supported and endured long enough, it would lead to a new individuation within the being itself, to a veritable metamorphosis. Anxiety already contains the premonition of this new birth of the individuated being based on the chaos that spreads all throughout. The anxious being feels that it might be able to be reconcentrated within itself in an ontological beyond that supposes a change in all dimensions. But in order for this new birth to be possible, the dissolution of the previous structures and the reduction of the previous functions and potential must be complete, which is an acceptance of the annihilation of the individuated being. 
This annihilation as an individuated being implies a contradictory movement through the dimensions according to which the individuated being poses its perceptive and effective problems. Anxiety begins with a sort of inversion of significations. Close things appear distant without a link to the contemporary and the actual, whereas distant beings are abruptly present and all-powerful. Uh, sorry. The present becomes hollowed out while losing its actuality. The plunge into the past and into the future dissipates the weft of the present and deprives it of its intensity, of its density as something lived. The individual being flees itself, deserts itself. And yet in this desertion, there is a sort of underlying drive to go uh, recompose oneself elsewhere and otherwise by reincorporating the world such that everything can be lived. The anxious being becomes universe to find another subjectivity. It exchanges itself with the universe, plunges into the dimensions of the universe. But this contact with the universe does not pass through the intermediary of action and the emotion correlative with action. And this contact lacks recourse to the trans-individual relation as it appears in the individuation of the collective. Anxiety expresses the condition of the solitary subject being. It goes as far as this single being can go. It is a sort of attempt to replace trans-individual individuation, which is impossible due to the absence of other subjects, with an exchange with the non-subject being. Anxiety realizes the highest achievement of the solitary being qua subject, but this realization seems to remain merely a state and does not seem to lead to a new individuation since it is deprived of the collective. However, there can be no absolute certainty on this point. The transformation of the subject being towards which anxiety tends is perhaps possible in several extremely rare cases. It's the weirdest part of this section. In anxiety, the subject feels that it does not act as it should, that it is moving further and further from the center and direction of action. Emotion becomes amplified and internalized. The subject continues to be and operate an ongoing modification within itself, but without acting, without being inserted into or participating in an individuation. The subject becomes distanced from the individuation that is still felt to be possible. It takes the inverse paths of the being. Anxiety is like the inverse course of ontogenesis. It unravels what has been woven. It goes backwards in every sense. For the individuated being submerged by pre-individual being, anxiety is a relinquishment in the acceptance to cross the destruction of individuality to venture towards another unknown individuation. It is the being's departure. Uh, I know there's this idea in Buddhism of like the, what's called the Pacheka Buddha, I'm probably mispronouncing that, but like the Buddha that somehow achieves enlightenment on, on its own, but as a result of doing doing that alone, can't actually teach enlightenment to anybody else. I guess I was trying to think of what these extremely rare cases would be, and that was the only thing I could I could think of in relation to that. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, example. Um, I'm not familiar with with that concept from uh, from Buddhism. Um, yeah, it's 
it's weird that he um he says he seems to argue that um it would not be possible um uh it would not be possible to um sort of succeed in anxiety um or to resolve a problem in anxiety um it's uh but then he goes on right right after to say well actually you know in in a few rare cases this this can happen um so it's it's kind of weird um but uh yeah that's that's just how he likes to make things interesting for us i guess um um yeah so there's more um um there's more i guess um development of this idea of anxiety as um a failure of the collective or a, a lack of the collective um so it's it's the way that um the individual subject uh isolated from from the um isolated from uh the collective their uh sort of highest thing they can achieve or the the furthest they can go is uh anxiety and they aren't capable of um they aren't capable of um really uh solving the problem that they that they have um set for themselves and then yeah so he he suggests that in in anxiety there's um we have this sort of um premonition of a transformation but we don't have the actual transformation itself so we 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 have this feeling of um you know possibly being able to uh transform ourselves and overcome ourselves um but that actual transformation is not is not actually there um except in these rare cases that he suggests also um are possible um yeah, what else is there? I mean, it's hard to um, sort of pick out one little one individual passage out of this because it's so it's so dense and everything sort of is so um, is so tied together. It's hard to um, pick out one one point and and say this is like the key point or something like that. I thought that idea of the present becoming hollowed out was interesting in relation to that earlier section on the trans individual where he says the present is only only possible for you know in signification in the collective yeah that's a good point um i hadn't thought of that uh yeah so we we talked about that a few weeks ago about um how um this function of the present is in some way connected to the collective and the the um the individual outside of the collective or or insofar as they're not part of a collective is not really capable of having a, a grasp of the present as such. Um, and uh, uh, this would sort of follow up from that or, or tie in with that idea um, in the way that some uh, an individual separate from the collective or um, insofar as they're not part of the collective they um they're incapable of solving the problems that are set by perception and uh 
and affectivity. Um, and, and so anxiety is, um, um, anxiety is sort of the, the result of, of that failure to individuate in the collective. Angus always has the, the quotes from uh, the wasteland and other poets too, I, I should say. Um, yeah, you've always got good uh, poetry quotes for us. Um, okay, I think that's maybe a good place to stop for today rather than starting the next section in the last uh, 20 minutes or so, or 15 minutes really. Um, maybe we can, yeah, if anyone has any like final thoughts or, or questions, um, and then we can wrap up after that. Uh, okay, so it doesn't sound like anyone has any anything to add. Um, one one thing I, I would mention, I I, uh, I I shouldn't I should have uh, mentioned this before, but um, we so we, we're recording these sessions and we're um, posting them on YouTube. Um, but there's uh, uh, you know some work that goes into editing and and um, um, you know. Uh, um, preparing the recordings for um, for uh, publication. And so uh, Leith Mason, who uh, used to, um, who was a regular member in uh, our um, reading group on the other Simon Dome book uh, um, on the mode of existence of technical objects. Um, but he's been doing that sort of behind the scenes um, for, for months now. Um, so I just wanted to thank him for that and uh, sort of, recognize the work that he's been doing. Okay, um, so we can end here today. And um, yeah, so thank you everyone uh, and see you all next week. Thanks, Nan. Thanks everyone. Thank you too. Thank you, bye-bye.